2: This is the hash podcast stay informed
0: with the latest on bitcoin eth the metaverse web3 and more with stories that matter to the crypto world all on the hash for your ears you're listening to the coindesk podcast network hey there welcome to coindesk tv you're watching the hash where we get up to speed on what's going on in crypto and more i'm zach seward we got adam Levine. Will Foxley and Jen Sinassi today, we are going to jump right in with an update on the Magic the Gathering online exchange. Adam, what do you got?
3: (laughs) First up, Mt. Gox, one of the earliest and at the time largest Bitcoin exchanges, which went broke back in 2014 after suspiciously losing most of the client funds held within it, has been in bankruptcy now for a very long time. But there does appear to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Creditors have been presented with two options now, take a slightly smaller recovery today in a combination of Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, and Yen, which the exchange still has on hand, or wait for a later recovery paid in cash that might be higher but might also be lower. Creditors who choose to wait might also be waiting for quite a while, as long as a decade potentially, while related litigation involving the company proceeds. Given that choice, the two largest creditors have decided to take payments sooner rather than later. Uh, And that means that market watchers, at least some of them, are happy. Uh, since the payments will be made without first selling Bitcoin into the market itself, which some people think will be better for price stability and stuff like that. Zach, we've been following this story for a long time. What's your take on it today? Yeah, good reporting here on this one, talking to sources who are involved in
0: this. This has been something that's been unfolding for a number of years. Almost a decade later, we have a bit of resolution. I think this also indicates how long some of the more uh, new crypto bankruptcies may take to unfold. But I think people end up watching this one closely. And obviously, the fear was that this would cause some, some Bitcoin liquidation in the market that would tank prices. If these sources are to be believed, then that seems to have been avoided for the time being. And this little Bitcoin rally that we've been seeing in the markets the last couple of days could continue apace. So anyway, this is something that I think people have been watching, obviously, for a long time. And it seems like we're getting a bit more information as this thing, I think, comes toward a conclusion maybe by the end of this year. That's sort of what I've been hearing from folks. But anyway, interesting to see this development. I'm going to toss it to Will for his thoughts.
1: I don't have a lot of thoughts on Mt. Gox, I'm not going to lie. Uh, way before my time, I was still in middle school, and this all went down. But I will talk a little bit about Bitcoin price, okay? Let's talk about Bitcoin price. Year to date, since January 1st, we were up 50%. This week, it's up 10%. And I think this is pretty pleasing to most Bitcoin enthusiasts. That's what I think. But I also think that there might be some connection here with the Mt. Gox story or at least we're going to say there is a little bit of a connection here just to uh, give ourselves like a little bit of a backing for why Bitcoin's price is going up. Oftentimes, the Mt. Gox story is kind of rolled out. I feel like every six months we have a similar story. There's some sort of development about coins are going to sell or coins are not going to sell. It's a significant portion of coins, right? That's held up in this, uh, in this dispute. And guess what? If they sell the coins, well, people expect the price of Bitcoin to go down. If those coins are locked up for longer, people expect the price of Bitcoin to go up. And here, as we see in this story, if these coins are never sold into fiat, but kept into Bitcoin and the people who are creditors get those Bitcoins and decide to hold them, well, then we also think that's probably a positive price. So I had to take the the crypto-windy angle here today since she's not here on the show. Got to talk a little bit about price. Jen, I'll throw it over to you.
2: Yeah, I zeroed in on just how long that the litigation could possibly take. So I think, Adam, you mentioned in your intro, they said it could be another five to 10 years when I read this story this morning, I just thought about all of the bankruptcies that we're seeing unfold right now, all of the creditors who are wondering when they are going to get any money back, if any. And it just made me just so not optimistic for these bankruptcy proceedings. I think and I hope that some solutions and resolutions can come up for the people who are suffering as a result of this bear market. But reading this just made me think like, Ugh, oh, we've seen this happen before and we're still trying to solve. Some of those issues. But Adam, I saw your hand go up.
3: Yeah, there's a couple of other interesting angles to this story, too. First off, the amount of Bitcoin we're talking about here is, I believe, 120,000 Bitcoin. So it's not a small amount. And it's worth noting that when we're talking about these recovery amounts that would be going out, they are typically more in dollar terms than uh, what the person actually had there at the time, in large part because this has taken so long. We've been through something like two additional bull market, bear market cycles that have each time pushed the value up. So it's worth noting that even though we're talking about recovery amounts that in like apples to apples terms are effectively 21% ish of what a person or entity actually had within Mt. Gox, that actually this will still be a win relative to getting paid back the dollars. And it's worth noting also that Mt. Gox was complicated. Like Mt. Gox was not really designed to be a Bitcoin exchange. You know, Zach mentioned this a little bit, but Magic the Gathering, you know, online trading cards, like that was kind of the point of this. And so this was a really interesting time. It's also worth noting that Mt. Gox had at one point in time 80% of the trading volume in crypto. So you look at someone like Binance out there today, who are absolutely enormous players in the market. Mt. Gox was bigger than that in percentage terms. And so again, it's weird because had this been resolved in, say, two years, then people would have lost a lot of money, relatively speaking. But because it's dragged on so long, paradoxically, it's kind of it's an okay thing, right? It's like it's a, it's a savings mechanism, <laughs> which is bizarre kind of to think about, but it, it happens. It's the coma lens. strategy in, in crypto. Will, I saw you. Go for it.
1: Yeah, two points. So one thing I want to bring up is, remember that Fidelity folklore tale about like the best clients they had in terms of performance were those who were dead or forgot the password to their account? This story kind of feels like that, right? You forgot the coins; they're locked up in Mount Gox, and now you take a big earning on top of it. And one other point to make here in terms of the coins: one hundred twenty thousand Bitcoin that's equivalent to like a lot of the firms that we're uh, familiar with now in headlines, like uh, the micro strategies of the world. If you look at Bitcoin miners in general, like the ones with the largest stack, only have about between eight and ten thousand Bitcoin—not very much. But oftentimes we blame Bitcoin miners or blame others who hold Bitcoin for influencing the price of Bitcoin going up and down. So I think. Mt. Gox certainly does influence it a lot more than a lot of these other entities which hold Bitcoin because it's a lot of Bitcoin to talk about. But we'll leave it there. Throw it over to Jen for our next story.
2: All right. We're going off to Wyoming, where the House of Representatives passed a bill that prohibits the forced disclosure of private crypto keys by the U.S. state's courts. The bill is called Disclosure of Private Cryptographic Keys. It's set to take effect in July and is applied to all cases and instances where information relevant to a case is unavailable through alternative means. Adam, I'm gonna kick this one right off to you. We see this regulation being set at a state level, right? And Wyoming has been really forward thinking, I think, in crypto regulation, but then we see the federal regulators kind of going in the opposite direction. Help, help us make sense of how, how this all works.
3: Yeah, so not an expert on this, but I've seen enough that I can provide some commentary here. As far as Wyoming is concerned, Wyoming has been doing this for a couple of years at this point. And basically, it's like, it's like ideologically more appropriate <laughs> ways to think about regulating these things. It's attempting to be nuanced. I've heard lots of people complain that what actually winds up getting enacted, like it looks good, but in practice, it needs more. They're like precursor steps. And I would assume that this is just kind of another one of those. There's just some stuff about cryptocurrency as a bearer asset that has digital characteristics that makes it pretty different from anything that we've seen before. So it does make sense that you would see this type of rule, which is effectively an extension of property rights. You know, it's effectively an extension of the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution that says that, hey, you can't just look at my stuff as a state authority because you want to. You have to actually have probable cause. And I have some protections here as well. So that's being extended effectively to private keys, which without that, again, you, you could potentially see uh, you know, someone being coerced into that. And this would, this would kind of take that off the table. The distinction between the state versus the feds is an important one, but it's worth noting again that Wyoming doesn't issue a currency. Wyoming uses the U.S. dollar um, and Wyoming is also pretty friendly to gold and silver, which again are other monetary alternatives. So I mean, like on the one side, you've got the state that's trying to create sort of the most fertile ground. Have new companies come in and build there, and it has worked. I personally have a couple of corporations uh, out of Wyoming, and I used to do that sort of thing out of Delaware. Again, made that change because of the way that these rules have come down. Uh, So again, like it's just different. Like the state motivation is to try to attract innovation, try to attract business because they're competing with all 50 other states for that business. At the federal level, they don't really compete with anybody at the national, uh, you know, at the uh, like the state level. They preempt it and they argue back and forth with each other over who is the, the party that should have authority over any given use case. So this is a continuation of trend that I think we're seeing from kind of both sides. But Will, I'll kick it to you for further thoughts.
1: Yeah, as a native Coloradan, I uh, always throw a little shade at our northern neighbors here. Uh, but I tip my hat to them today because this is good stuff, right? The fact that they're one to continue protecting cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency users and assets is significant. The one thing I want to bring up here is actually more cultural, and that is that Wyoming has sort of been like the target of crypto lawyers and been the target of like crypto enthusiasts. Like they have successfully infiltrated a lot of Wyoming's government in order to move forward with many of these plans. And just to your point, Adam, like that's kind of Wyoming thing, right? They're very libertarians, like off my soil, keep my house, my house. I don't want you to touch my stuff. And Bitcoin really fits into that. But they have been so progressive with all their Bitcoin legislation, all their crypto legislation. I mean, this is one instance of it, but we also have that banking legislation they passed over the last few years, which has allowed these special entities to be built within Wyoming for crypto banking. Then you also mentioned like the LLC thing, where you can basically spin up a DAO and have as an LLC based in Wyoming. It's a very friendly state for all uh, Wyomingites, or for all cryptoites, I should say. Like Even Kraken, I think, is actually based out of Cheyenne at this point. So, uh, to, to your point, Adam, like spot on there. Hopefully more continues there. I wonder what this does for like Bitcoin culture and crypto culture. Are we going to see like more people move to Wyoming? I have a feeling the cold weather will keep people away, but maybe if more of the stuff keeps coming down the pipe. Zach, up to you.
0: I'm just really glad that you brought back, you know, the meme of you as a Coloradan uh, hating Wyoming. So thank you for doing that. That really brought a smile to my face there. That's, that's That's a good callback. I think the thing here is like, you know, you have a patchwork of state regulations. They're going to get superseded by some federal regulation at some point. And maybe the state approach is going to matter less and less, right? And I think now a lot of, at the federal level, there's much more serious attention being paid to, okay, how do we regulate DAOs? How do we regulate this stuff? And at some point, I think that competitive advantage that states like Wyoming, which has been an early mover, you know, may be eroded by some of these federal legislations and even laws that come out around stablecoins coins and how those need to interact with regulated banking entities at the federal level. So that to me is like what this story is ultimately about. Will this matter down the line, even for states that have been thoughtful and moving early on some of these conversations? Uh, Adam, I saw your hand, I got to give you the last word.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that this is, um, like this is St. Kitts, right? Uh, you know, except in the United States, right? It's, it's attempting to be a regulatory, like safe zone. But in practice, that's just really, really hard to do if you also are a state in the US. <laughs> because the feds disagree with that. So I totally agree with you on that. I think that there is a positional element here, which is that the pushback that we're seeing from the federal government does seem like something that has an expiration date on it. There will come a time when either there will be a push to actually eliminate this stuff as a technology that can be used by U.S. citizens, or they'll soften the perspective. They'll, uh, again, start to do things themselves that will, will kind of come together with that. So maybe it's positioning for that. Because there are a lot of states out there that have taken a much harder line approach, notably New York and California, you know. And so, again, like if you have to pick, okay, well, the U.S. is going to be less hostile than they have been in the past, and there's this big market, where do I want to set up? Is it going to be California today? I don't think so. I think Wyoming still winds up being effective. So even if they can't get past the Fed stuff, still on a state-to-state comparison, I think they come out looking pretty good with this. Mm.
0: Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain, and web 3 startups, teams, and builders, apply to Coindesk Pitchfest, powered by Google Cloud, and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com/slash pitchfest hey there welcome back to the hash it's me zach nfts remember those digital tchotchkes that we know love and some folks hate well let's take a look at the nft market and two major forces that are emerging at least with ethereum-based nfts blur is a bit of a new entrant into this market i should say with a bit of new functionality that incumbents like OpenSea and others don't really have and now we're seeing Blur volumes rival and at times surpass those over at OpenSea. Also a bit of a war of words between founders with the Blur founder urging people to stop using OpenSea, and now we're seeing all this escalate a bit. It's fun to see. It's interesting to see, and I think we've long thought of OpenSea, again, as this incumbent that's so entrenched in the NFT trading scene that they may not be able to be displaced. Blur maybe is challenging that thesis. So let's talk about this. Janet, I'm going to toss it to you. What's your take on Blur, both their approach to sort of winning attention and again, some of these new numbers that we're seeing in terms of volume?
2: I was really surprised when I saw the numbers this morning. I didn't expect to see that Blur's trading volume would have surpassed OpenSea. Granted, I haven't looked at NFT marketplace numbers in a while. I have to just say at the top of this segment, I love that we're talking about NFTs every day again, no matter what shape or form it comes in. It just makes me happy to be here again. So, okay, what do I make of this? Last year, we asked, do we need all of these NFT marketplaces? It seems like there's a new NFT marketplace popping up every day, whether they're focusing on, you know, entertainment, uh, brand partnerships, traders. The answer is no, I don't think we do need all of these NFT marketplaces, and they're going to find a way to weed themselves out by being more competitive. I think that Blur's strategy here is really interesting. It almost reminds me of the uh, competitive nature of the exchanges we've seen happening over the past few years. And Blur is really targeting creators, right? They're saying creators deserve to get royalties from the platforms that they're on. And that's what we believe in. We believe in in this ethos, the ethos of these NFT marketplaces. And OpenSea allows you to turn that option off. And so block OpenSea, you can operate with us. We are here for you and we're gonna push that ethos through. We're here for you. We're holding your hand and we're your partner in this. And I think that it's super smart. And I wonder how OpenSea is gonna respond. Zach?
0: I mean, they're also kind of targeting DGENs too, right? You know, they have this functionality where you can kind of buy in mass, right? Let me just sweep this whole floor. I'm going to flip it, whatever, whatever. And again, sort of DGENs are on the cusp of like the ends of the spectrum, right? They're doing things that don't necessarily fit into sort of like a more mainstream perspective of what NFT marketplaces can be. So this is sort of the resurgence of the DGEN sort of leading the charge in the NFT trading realm where historically we've seen that in DeFi and other aspects of the crypto space. So I think that is interesting too that, the Gen aspect in addition to the creator aspect. Adam, tossing
3: it to you. Yeah, I mean, the DGEN archetype is the one that winds up making all the transactions, right? So if you're going to go after an aggressive, you know, like onboarding tactic, then going after the people who make all of the transactions or make the majority of the transactions, those are your power users, makes a ton of sense. I think one of the interesting parts about this to me is that you know OpenSea is a giant incumbent but it seems kind of obvious that they became pretty uncomfortable with their positioning towards the you know middle end of last year and we saw towards the later part of the year i believe it was in early december a really aggressive short time frame move to try and make people pick between the OpenSea marketplace which at the time and you know to date still is the dominant platform in the space right or some of the competitors that are trying to innovate, including doing things like taking the problem of royalties, which has never been something that really can be solved on chain, like these are all basically glorified opt in systems that some users just don't understand that they're opt in, and tried to make people basically pick. I don't think that worked very well. I think they wound up pissing off a lot of people. I think a lot of people thought that it just looked kind of like a weak move, like they were trying to retain relevance when really they were quite relevant before, so I think that they have come to appreciate the precariousness of the position in which they occupy, where they currently have incredible dominance, but that dominance could not last very long. And so they're taking classic, you know, anti-competitive steps in some cases, at least to what I can see, to try and preserve that. But I think it's going to backfire on them. And I think that we're already witnessing it backfire on them. Well...
1: Yeah, I'm a known NFT hater uh, until recently with the debut of Ordinals on top of Bitcoin. But I will talk about the market dynamics here, which are a bit interesting. That, that will pull me into the conversation a little bit here. So NFT trading was about $4 billion at its peak, like in terms of sales over 30-day average. Now it's around $500 million, So that might seem like a steep drop-off. But in reality, that's actually still a lot of money. Brady Dale from Axios had a great uh, piece about this this morning in his newsletter, former Coindesk reporter as well. So go check his work out. And he's talking about how like this is still like, a lot of money. And we might think that the NFT market is dead or it's not really there anymore. But the reality is it's still there. It's $500 million. It's quite a bit of sales. And now we have all these different exchanges, to your point, Jen, that are gobbling up or trying to like eat at the margins any other players out there, right? So they're all competing for a very small portion of an increasingly smaller pie. And what breeds there is competition and different tactics and different strategies to beat out your competitor. And I think Blur comes into this marketplace doing the same thing, right? Where OpenSea was dominant because it chose a different strategy two years ago, three years ago with the ability to like instantly mint something on chain. Now we have something three years later where they're going to change the strategy a little bit in order to have more market dominance. So I guess, Jen, there's a lot of different competitors out there, but there's only going to be more. And then we're going to see some fall off as people have different strategies that beat out competitors. Zach, up to you.
0: Yeah, last quick thought. I mean, you go back to those stats, right? You're looking at something like you know, fourteen thousand wallets and twenty-six thousand wallets. It's still remarkable to me that you can fit the entirety of the NFT trading environment within a single like NFL stadium. That's how early this is, despite all the noise about NFTs themselves. Anyway, tossing it to you, Will, for the last story of the day.
1: That's right. Okay, let's turn over to a sadder story to end the day on, but something we definitely need to be paying attention to, and that is the trial of Alex Pertsev, who is a tornado cash developer. He was arrested in August by Dutch authorities after the sanction by OFAC on the Tornado Cash Ethereum address, uh, Alexei was essentially detained and wasn't really given a lot of information on why he's being detained in August because he contributed code to this project, which does allow people to mix money on chain. This money mixture has been used by the North Korean regime in order to facilitate its nuclear ambitions. Basically, Allegedly. has come back all the way to uh, the Developers here with Alexi being taken in by Dutch authorities. This is an ongoing case. And yesterday we had a great new update showing that they're trying to get into his laptop and trying to see if he was a user of something called a relay. A relay basically enabled someone to help facilitate the movement of money onto Tornado Cash and get a small fee for doing that. This would help the prosecutors in the case be able to show that, hey, Alexi was actually not only developing this code, but he was actively profiting from helping people to mix money here. Adam, I'll throw the story up to you. Uh, I heard a little slip in there allegedly, because I guess everything is somewhat allegedly when it comes to money laundering. It's a little hard to trace back every dollar since things are so fungible. But I do want to get your point on this whole topic because it's a, it's another step in the trial, which a lot of crypto people should be paying attention to.
3: Yeah, allegedly is a word that we use a lot. We probably don't use it enough. It's fallen out of parlance. But basically, when you're charged with a crime, then you are alleged to have committed that crime until you are found guilty. At the point that you are found guilty, it is no longer an allegation. It is something else. But until then, it's an allegation. And that, that often gets confused because, again, like at least in the United States, we're all entitled to a presumption of innocence until we're proven guilty. Now, this is not a case that's going to go down in the United States. And so we may see a different standard applied there. But it's a really sad example of, again, raw technology that can be used for purposes that are both good and bad, that is basically just being assumed by the powers that be that any use of it is bad or anything that attaches to it that could be bad, that is alleged to be bad, <laughs> but it hasn't actually proven to be that thing, still warrants this type of thing. And I just think that it stands in sharp contrast, especially to you know, what we see going on with Sam Bankman-Fried right now. Again, like nominally, he's supposed to have a $250 million bail, uh, you know, in order to get out. We just found out yesterday with new information that was revealed that actually there's a total of $700,000 worth of bonds that have been put up so far to cover that $250 million. And he's been out, you know, communicating, wasn't even banned from using, you know, like different like computer, you know, software and stuff like that, which is totally atypical in a case like this. So again, it's just, it's, it's an example of the incredible difference in standards that are applied both in different nations and given the context here, where this person is just pretty much being assumed to be guilty, when really, so far, we've seen no evidence to prove that. And actually, this article here is talking about how they're now in the process of looking to see if there's evidence that supports that he actually did any of the stuff that he's been sitting in jail for now for three months. So it's, a, it's an irritating story, but I'll hand it off to you, Jen.
2: This whole story is worrying to me. The part I zeroed in on was this. The prosecution is hoping to make the case that by steering proposals and votes relating to the decentralized autonomous organization that governed the protocol, Petsiv and others played more than a passive role in tornado operations. I think that this could be a very worrying precedent that's set for decentralized organizations if they're able to make that argument and very worrying for community members of any decentralized organization that does anything. If you have a Governance token and a platform in which you can buy and use and trade that governance token, and it's used by malicious actors. Are you responsible if you're part of the community? I think this is just a worrying thing that a lot of communities are going to have to face and be careful of. Will?
1: Yeah, one thing I want to bring up and actually get Zach's take on it is the use of the Tornado Cash token, Torn, which was launched in 2021. Torn token was basically a token that accrued value from being used in the ecosystem. And then also it was airdrop to anyone who had used Tornado Cash. The problem with it, of course, is that you basically linked a monetary instrument into this money launderer, or at least in the eyes of the law, a money laundering mechanism, right? And so you do have some sort of profit connection between it, whether you like it or not. And I think this is going to become a larger and larger part of this whole trial, is the fact that this token does exist and it's on top of it. Zach, I'll throw it to you for a last take, though.
0: Yeah, my understanding from the hearing was that that was a central point of contention, right? The torn token, the Porsche that this alleged freedom fighter was driving, that became a key argument that the uh, prosecution put forth there. So I think that the token aspect is something that a lot of teams need to be reckoning with. Anyway, we have to end the show there. You know what? I'm going to plug something. I tried to get this out of David Morris the other day, but season two is about to drop and it's going to be about... Go quan Crypto Crooks. Check it out. I'm Zach, Adam, Jen, Will. See you tomorrow. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.